Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Instagram or threads at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. If you're looking for a bit of extra help on learning your orchestra or solo repertoire, perhaps we can help. Visit www.thecellosherpa.com and drop us a line. We offer virtual or in-person lessons. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. Today's guest is cellist Mark Kassauer, who truly embodies the concept of the complete musician, performing as concerto soloists with symphony orchestras, in solo recitals, and as a much-admired and sought-after chamber musician. He has been the principal cellist of the Cleveland Orchestra since 2010. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Thank you, Joel. It's great to be here. You have an incredible and varied resume, having performed all over the world as a soloist and chamber musician, while holding down a principal position in one of the premier orchestras. You have nine recordings on multiple record labels and are represented by Colbert Artists Management. Can you talk about how your background paved the way for such a full career? Well, sure. I was born into a musical family, so my father's a cellist, my older sister's a cellist, and so I was breathing and living cello from basically from conception <laughs> and from before, yeah. because my father was always practicing. And so I had this background and this musical family, I mean, to the point where I think I was four years old and my mother still talks about the day that I realized that Bach was dead. Oh, And <laughs> because everybody talked about Bach and, you know, my father was also an organist in the Lutheran church. And so it was very much a living person to me. So the day I learned he was dead, it was a shock. In other words, I had a very much a musical upbringing. I studied with my father. I also studied with members of the Minnesota Orchestra growing up and particularly Tanya Romanikova, who is cello professor still at the University of Minnesota. So I had this background, and, and Tanya was a student of Mstislav Rostropovich. And then w- went on to college, studied with Janos Starker, and then Joel Krosnick at Juilliard. And I always mention that I had chamber music with Robert Mann at Juilliard and also George Shebuck at Indiana University. And those experiences were very powerful in my development. And also I'll mention Leon Fleischer because I had a number of experiences with him that were very powerful. So I always said, if I don't turn out to be a good musician, it's my fault. (laughs) Having all those incredible influences. And my father studied with Ernst Silberstein, the principal cellist of the Cleveland Orchestra under George Zell. And so there's just so many wonderful influences. That's how I came to be a cellist. And all those influences really taught me much more than cello, just how special music is and how it communicates and how it can, at its very best, even be a spiritual experience. Yeah. So you were a year and a half old when you started with your father. Is that correct? That's right. I started studying with him and then also immediately with the Suzuki method, because at that time, 
Yeah, in the late 70s, there was a very strong Suzuki program with over 100 kids in my hometown of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Wow. And then at what point would you say you knew for sure you wanted to pursue a path in music? I think I was listening to a record of Rostropovich playing when I was four or five, right in there. And I was like, I want to do that. And then also I was witnessing my father perform and practice all along. So, I mean, it was pretty ingrained. I even, I think at one point thought that everybody played an instrument. So, I mean, it was that (laughs) natural. It was that much a part of who I was. And so I was just surrounded with music all the time. Yeah. And so as you got older and you started really thinking about what kind of career you were going to have, what did you envision? What was your goal originally? Because obviously you're doing so much. You have your hand in really every aspect of this profession, which I think is super cool. But I'm wondering what you envisioned when you were a teenager, let's say, or you were heading to music school as to what you wanted your career to look like. Well, sure. You know, it's funny because I I mean, I think like everybody, you know, up front were inspired by the solo performance. So of course, Rostropovich and Pierre Fournier. And when I became a teenager, you know, Yo-Yo Ma and we all go through periods where certain artists were just latched onto them and they inspire us. And so I knew I wanted to be a solo cellist of sorts and a, a soloist. And so I embarked on that, but I was always interested in chamber music, played a lot of chamber music. And I loved orchestra when I was a student in Aspen. Being at the Aspen Music Festival in high school was really eye-opening and was very inspiring. I mean, just all the experiences I had there from playing second chair in the Aspen Festival Orchestra with my stand partner, Eric Kim, who was Mm -hmm. the principal cellist of the Cincinnati Symphony at the time. And then I had a student piano trio and we were being coached by Paul Cantor and Rita Sloan and William Grubb. And it was just a very inspiring environment. So I knew I wanted to be a, a solo cellist of sorts. And I loved playing concertos, of course, and was interested in doing that. So then is that what made you pursue the competition route first, thinking that that would get your name out there? Or how did that unfold? Right. I think the first international competition I participated in was the Irving Klein competition. Mm -hmm. And I happened to win it at age 15. And then Hmm. from there, it kind of helped me get started being able to appear as a guest soloist with various orchestras and it kind of went from there. And then later, of course, when I was in college, I was winning top prizes in the Casals competition in Germany and the Rostropovich competition in Paris. And so all these things, they were helpful. And those later competitions, I looked at them like they were just motivating events. I tried to use them as something just to improve my plane. You know, I was like, I wanted to get to the next level and I was going to use these deadlines and these requirements of the competition to help me do that. And I was able to do that successfully. So, and then of course, it's nice when you can walk away always with some prizes too. So, yeah. So how did you end up on the orchestra track? I mean, was your first job in Germany then? Right. You know, it's funny because I always thought with everything I do, it was a bit like fishing. So I would always put various fishing poles in the water and whichever (laughs) Paul gets a bite, then I follow up the leads and just see where it goes. And so, yeah, I mean, in a way, playing in an orchestra, it was kind of an accident in the sense that it was a really far-fetched connection to Germany. So the other solo cellist, since, you know, Europe has two principles of every section, the other one in Bamberg, he heard me play 
at a cello festival in Kronberg in, in 2000. And he remembered me. And so when the other solo position opened up, he contacted me and he, he just asked me if I would be interested. And he said, the Bamberg Symphony is coming to play in New York. And would you be interested in playing for the cello section? And I was living in New York. I said, sure. And so I did. And it was very nice and all, but then they went and had their audition and didn't hear anything. And then about four months later, I got a call and they said, oh, we're going on tour to Sao Paulo and Brazil. And we wanted to know if you want to come as a guest principal and play Brahms' second piano concerto and the soloist is Rudolf Buchbinder. And I was like, sure. (laughs) Why wouldn't you want to do that? It sounds like a lot of fun, great music, tremendous artists, and the greatest cello solo probably in the repertoires. Uh So I did. And then after that, they're like, well, do you want to come and take our audition? I mean, it was kind of tied together, but you know, a week or two later, and I was like, okay. And so I did. And then when I won the job, I think the reason I accepted it at first is because I always had a little bit of the Europe itch. Yeah. And I wanted to experience life over there and yeah, just to see what it was like. And so I had a great time there and I was always a little bit split because you have this time off because there's two principles. And so I had 43% of the season off. Oh, wow. And so I used that time actually to keep all my solo stuff going in America. So every time I wasn't playing, I was on Lufthansa to the USA. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So all those fishing poles were catching fish at the same time. (laughs) Pretty much. Right. And, you know, I always thought, well, no, I think even early on between solo playing, chamber music, being a principal in an orchestra and also teaching, I found these things always played off of one another. And the better you could do or understand and excel in one area, it always paid dividends in another. And so that always fascinated me. And to this day, all those different activities, they always feed off of one another. Yeah. I mean, most of us really, I think, find a path and sort of choose that one. I think it's pretty unique to be able to continue all of them. I think it's really cool. Well, let's talk about then how that led to the Cleveland Orchestra, because I'd love to know how you're balancing all of those things now. Sure. It was funny because I also taught my first full-time professional job was a professor of cello and chamber music at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Oh, okay. And then the Germany thing was always looming or lurking around, and it was fleeting. And then from there, I decided to go to Bamberg and be the solo cellist there. And, and I even did both jobs for a year and playing concerts. Oh, wow. Because I wanted to see if that's really something I wanted to do or not. Because, you know, you don't really know sometimes unless you... And, and I actually in, intended to continue doing both. Then finally, I just decided, well, I think I should just choose one. And so it is a lot of jetting around, of course. So that's how that started. And then Coming to Cleveland was also rather vague at first because it was a December of, what year was it, 2008? And I got a phone call, or no, it was an email from somebody in the Cleveland Orchestra, and an acquaintance, somebody I didn't know very well. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, our principal cello job is open. And they said, are you interested? And my response was, well, if the Cleveland Orchestra is interested in me, then I would have to be interested in the Cleveland Orchestra. (laughs) So that's what I said. And then nothing. And let's see, about a month and a half later, I received a message from then President Joel Smirnoff. Okay. And he said, are you interested in teaching at the Cleveland Institute of Music? And I (laughs) said, sure, I would be interested in teaching at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And he said, 
Well, that's great, but I can't hire you unless you become the principal cellist of the Cleveland Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and then I was like, great. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, okay, so if the meteor hits me, then I'll see you in Cleveland. So, because I mean, I always say with those jobs, it, it doesn't matter how talented or a gift. I mean, a lot of things have to go right to win a job like that, as we all know. It's much more than being qualified or being a a great cellist or musician or person or all those things. Just a lot of things have to, you have to have your day and it just has to be the right chemistry. So then again, more time went by. And then I got a call from the personnel office of the orchestra they asked me if I would be interested in coming to a private audition in Cleveland. And I said I would be, but they said they didn't want to waste my time if Franz isn't going to be interested in me. So they said he's conducting at the Salzburg Festival. Would you be willing to drive down from Bamberg, meet him and play for him preliminarily to see if he likes your plane and, and how you like him and all that And so that's what I did. And we had a nice 15-minute meeting. I played a number of things for him. And I walked away feeling for sure that he was interested. So then we arranged for me to come to the private audition in Cleveland. And it was a private audition in that it wasn't a nationally advertised audition. But there were nine other cellists at the audition, which they weren't just any cellists, too. They all had titles from major orchestras in the U.S. And I had only at that point ever played one other private invitation audition. And at that audition, there were only two other cellists. And so I I think I was expecting something similar, but this was a much bigger event. So I took the audition and then was selected. So you see, you never know what's going to happen and how fleeting thoughts and ideas can somehow morph into a real opportunity. And then it turned out that by playing in Bamberg and by teaching at the conservatory, those experiences prepared me for what I would then do in Cleveland. Yeah. And I know that they had gone through a regular cycle of an internationally advertised audition previous to the private audition where they invited a very high caliber concentration of cellists to show up. I know Cleveland has somewhat of a different setup of some orchestras where they're able to do that. They'll run through an audition. If they don't find somebody, then they can go through this more private route, which can really help to narrow down sometimes the person you want, especially in those principal positions. It can... Right. And I don't believe we've done that so much in recent years. I'm not sure. Are you aware of other American orchestras doing this sometimes when they don't choose somebody? I think New York does that uh-huh. from what I've heard. But most of us, I think we have to go through several cycles of auditions. I know we've had a couple that have been a little more unique like that also, but uh-huh. people tend to get mad in the outside because they feel like it doesn't give enough opportunity for everybody. But it's also the way that the regular auditions work has a lot of limitations also. So it's challenging to try and create enough access for everybody and get the right candidate for the job, I think is the struggle we're in right now. Exactly. And and we actually just changed. So now we're a fully screened audition process. And I believe we don't even know anymore who the candidates are when we look at uh, resumes. We just see the resumes. So, so same here. Yeah. So we're, yeah. I think we've really moved towards, you know, the modern industry standard. Yeah. So those two auditions that you took for Bomberg and Cleveland, were those the only two orchestra auditions you ever took? 
No. Let me think about this. You know how I told you with Bomberg once, the first thing that happened is it wasn't really an audition. I just played for the cello section of the Bomberg Symphony when they were in town. And the music director was up in one of the balconies of then Avery Fisher Hall listening to. Oh, okay. <laughs> so in, in, I guess in a way that's a audition that's, you know, it wasn't a, the official audition. And after that, I was a guest principal. And then after that, I came to the regular audition. I once played for the cello section of the London Symphony, just like Bamberg. Nothing really became of that. Mm-hmm. And I also was a guest principal in the North German Radio Orchestra in Hamburg once when Dochnani was music director. And he was interested in me being the principal there. But I mean, it just felt like there was a lot of stuff going on. And so that didn't really work out in the end either. But then I saw Dochnani in Cleveland after I won the job here. But I never took an orchestra audition from the outright, though. I mean, just, well, I mean, Bamberg was, but it's a little bit different in that I had already been a guest principal and also played for the section beforehand. So I guess I never walked into an orchestra audition cold, you could say that. Yeah. So where you had to start from a screen round and go right. through all the rounds, the torture right. chamber of auditions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm very, extremely fortunate from that perspective. Yeah. Well, obviously you have a ton of experience soloing. You have a ton of experience in chamber music, which I so often find in these interviews that chamber music really seems to be the key to making good orchestral players because it's just chamber music on a bigger scale. What would you say are the qualities that make a good leader? And are these things that you needed to learn or did they come naturally? Because obviously now you've been principal in two orchestras. So you have a good sense. And and I'm wondering what that process was like for you to learn what you needed to, to do that job. I mean, of course, we're all born with different strengths and weaknesses. I always thought if you put a cello in my hands, I tend to be naturally a good leader. But with that being said, there were a lot of things I learned as I was developing myself as a cellist and musician, you know, how to cue, how to lead, how to anticipate what the music needs when, basically. Mm -hmm. And also in regards to interacting with other people. I mean, I think a lot of it was very intuitive and natural because I played cello trios with my father and sister for 10 years. You know, we played concerts across the country. So I was playing chamber music in that form from age five. So so there were a lot of things that I later learned that a lot of the things I'm already doing, but just to really make it conscious and so that you just understand it on a higher level. But then other things as well. But I would say in terms of being in a professional orchestra, as a student, you play in a lot of regional orchestras sometimes for experience and for money and those types of things. But it doesn't really, in the end, have much to do with being a full-time member of an orchestra. That's a different thing. And now organizations like New World and Chicago Civic and Music Now at Bard, I mean, there's a lot of programs that are preparing people for all the other stuff that goes along with being a a member of an orchestra, which in my generation and before, we didn't have any of those training courses or seminars or or things. And so I think once you're in, for me anyway, when I was in the Bomberg Symphony, I had to learn how symphony orchestra works and also the type of leadership, how to, yeah, handle your section. But 
there's also a lot of common sense involved. I mean, how do you define that? But if, yeah, if you're convincing with how you lead the section in action, then the things you have to verbalize don't tend to be so many, but it's just people skills, how you can best communicate with the people who are in your section, your relationship with them and their relationship with you. And so that I think is really key. And it certainly helps when you have your section behind you, you know, when they really have your back, so to speak. Yeah. So you don't feel like you have to turn around all the time and say things to the section if you're clear? No. And of course, in Bombrig, I did some when necessary, but I tried to show it most of the time. I, I took the same approach in Cleveland. I think, and you would probably agree with me, that the best conductors don't usually have to verbalize so much either because they can show us what they want. Absolutely. <laughs> in live, you know, and, and I remember, I mean, some people aren't a fan of you don't really see it much anymore, but some old world conductors would yell things out while they're conducting the orchestra. And, and of course, that doesn't always work because people far away have a harder time hearing. But I do think sometimes more often, less is more, especially when it's said in a way that has impact and, and really touches something that's going to have a big overall impact. And then if you're able to show your colleagues, what you're trying to do and how you're influencing the music, then it can save a thousand words. Yeah, so true. So when you hold cello auditions in the Cleveland Orchestra, what are you looking for in section members? Well, whether it's a cello audition or I participate in all the string auditions, we're always looking for the best musician that fits our ensemble. And I think I'm sure you are thinking along the same lines. You're not only looking for, quote unquote, the best person, but you're looking for the best person for the particular position that's open. Uh-huh. So those are considerations. But one of the things I've always really appreciated about what we do in Cleveland is we're really looking for people who really understand the meaning behind the excerpts that are being played and are playing them in very artistic and thoughtful ways that are expressed that meaning. It's always about what's behind the page. I mean, yes, we want people, of course, that play beautifully in tune and with a beautiful sound and great rhythm and all those things. And now in the modern world, it's so often we boil everything down to these boxes, check intonation, check sound, check articulations, dynamics. And of course, all those things are extremely important. However, I think it's always helpful to ask the question, what is this piece really about? And what is it trying to describe? Because if you can answer that question or take steps towards getting closer to an answer, it immediately defines all the other things that need to be done. Yeah, And it gives a greater sense of purpose to the music. So it's not just about execution. And I think all of us in our practicing and preparation have fallen into the trap when you're preparing for an orchestra audition that, oh, it has to be perfect. And it's like you're trying to duplicate something so perfectly and becomes like a mechanical exercise. And that's why when people used to ask me, they would say, how do you play an orchestra excerpt? And I, my response would be, you play it like a piece of music. <laughs> I mean, of course, there has to be certain orchestral aspects, like if you're playing a spiccato, you don't want a really short and vertical, small spiccato that 
people 10 feet away from you can't play with. You got to create enough space and the orchestral aspects. But besides that, I think what appeals to people the most is active communication. It's just like you said, it's no different than chamber music or solo playing. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, I know you're passionate about teaching and educating our next generation. Having previously served on the faculty of the Cleveland Institute of Music, and in the summer you teach at the Hidden Valley Music Seminars and the Colorado College of Music, you also regularly visit the New World Symphony and work with the fellows, and you'll be on faculty at the Taipei Music Academy and Festival Teaching this summer. How would you describe your teaching philosophy? Teaching philosophy? Well, one of the things that I think is really important when thinking about music and educating someone is that there are certain things that are musical truths, meaning no matter what you decide to do, certain things are true. Just like the car in my garage is a car. Uh-huh. It's always going to be a car. You know, like if you're playing Beethoven, well, he was a German composer with a strong Viennese influence for having lived in Vienna. I mean, that's always going to be there. Music is a language. So if you're playing Germanic music, the first note you play is going to be the stress. It doesn't matter what beat it falls on, but linguistically that's because it's related to German and the stress is always on the first beat. And so those are absolute truths that are not disputable. And so I like to think of playing classical music, it's like you have all these choices, all these things you can do, but it's like being in a baseball stadium. So there is a left field wall, there is a right field wall, a center field wall, and within the ballpark, there's infinite possibilities, but it does reach a point where certain things fall outside the realm of Beethoven's world. Uh-huh. So I think it's music is a reflection of life. So we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and we all have our limitations or boundaries that either we create or are imposed on us. And it's our job to first learn those boundaries where they are. And then once we get good at that, then we can gradually start pushing those boundaries and expanding our world and expanding the possibilities. And so that's why I think when you're teaching, it's interesting because you sometimes run into two, you know, everybody's climbing the mountain from a different angle, and we're all kind of going to either the same or a similar place. And so some people, they want to do everything correctly, and they're afraid to try something that might be considered out of taste or quote-unquote incorrect. And so I always try to encourage people like that. I'm like, you have to allow yourself to try anything and everything, because you need to learn what's a better choice and what's a less good choice. And sometimes what you think is a less good choice turns out to be the best choice. So you might think there's a boundary there and maybe there isn't. And then on the other hand, maybe you think that all these things could work and then you find out, well, there's only one or two things that are actually going to work. So there's that type of approach. And then you'll have the type of student often who doesn't feel any limits or boundaries at all. And they just do anything they feel like doing, which is for performance, a wonderful quality. And you don't want to get in the way of that. But at the same time, if you're playing Beethoven or if you're playing Mozart or if you're playing Debussy, yeah, there are certain things that are, again, absolute truths about this music that it helps so you have 
these going back to the baseball stadium. So you have the fences and foul posts and you have the bases, the infield, the outfield. So you get a sense of, okay, well, we know these things are true. And so whatever we decide to do, which there's all these possibilities, but it needs to belong to this world. Yeah. So So I guess it sounds like you would encourage people to push the boundaries, but also within the limitations of the constructs of the composer or the specific time period or pieces that you're in. Yeah, I would, because I do think that as a performer, it's our job to try to adhere to the composer's wishes and recreate the music to the best of our abilities that we think the composer intended to hear. Now, with that being said, we know most composers often evolve in their thinking about a piece of music. So they write a piece of music, have specific ideas about it, and those ideas over time, as they live with the piece, evolve and and sometimes even change. So that also is a liberating thought. But I think it is helpful at least to start in a place where what we know about the composer, the world they lived in, and what they were thinking. Yeah. So given the fact that you have substantial experience in so many aspects of our career, what advice would you give to musicians pursuing a similar path to yours? Well, I would just say dream big. Uh-huh. Because you need to have big dreams and be excited about things that motivate you to get you going and to get you in a direction. And you can have you know big ideas and you can always change them. If you decide later, well, I'm not sure that's what I want to do, you can dream big about something else because you don't know how far you can go until you give it your best. Yeah. And then and another thing I've been hearing it more and more over the years, which I'm really grateful for, but the people who have succeeded or who, who have the greatest success have failed the most. Uh-huh. They've learned the most from their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to be willing to be rejected. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of instances where we were hoping something would happen, you know, a concert or whatever it is, get to play for somebody. And for this reason and that, it didn't work out. Or you took an audition or played in a competition, you didn't win first prize, or you didn't even advance in that competition or that audition. You can't let those things. I mean, of course, you're not going to be excited about <laughs> those things having happened. But at the same time, you have to have a bigger vision. And I think the more you can have a personal vision artistically and like what you're trying to do with your music, what you want to sound like, how you want your music to play a role in not only your life, but other people's lives and how you want to influence people with ideas and concepts that are important to you and you believe in, I think the more you can define those things, the career will follow and it'll be clear to you what kinds of things you want to pursue. Yeah, so true. And because I think, you know, you can play 30 concerts a year, 50 concerts, 100 concerts and play great, but it's going to mean a lot more to you If you find out what drives you and what motivates you and what's important to you, and if you can follow those things after figuring those things out, it's going to serve you well. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Joel. Thank you. 
Thank you so much to Mark Kossower for joining us today and sharing his story with us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. For more information on Mark and any of the links we spoke about today, check out our show notes by scrolling down on the episode. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview cellist Desmond Hobig, professor of cello at Rice University's Shepherd School of Music. We talk about his incredible career as principal cellist of the orchestras of Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Houston, his transition to full-time teaching, and much more. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Don't forget to follow us and rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. This helps us climb the rankings so other people can find us. Today's episode was edited by Eric Begay at Red House Productions and produced and recorded by me, Joel Dallow.